Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Hear God's word to us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to start by making a statement. Um, Who here doesn't love a good road trip? (laughs) Right? Uh, You throw everyone in the car, you consume an audiobook, or maybe even um, you eat way too much fast food, guilty, Uh, and then you, instead of scrolling through your emails or your to-do list, you get to scan through your music. I mean, what isn't there to love about a good road trip? Well, once a year, my wife Allie and I, we make our way to Columbus, Ohio for Thanksgiving, spend time with family and with friends. And sure, um, traffic can be a bear, and sure, um, we can have uh, heated discussions about how to navigate the traffic that is a bear to, to navigate. It is 11 hours one way, by the way. But the destination always makes it worth it, right, in those moments. And it even makes worth staying in a small town called Effingham, Illinois. Um, either some of you are smiling because you know that town or you're worried about what I'm about to say. Well, one year uh, we took our dog with us to Columbus, Ohio, and we had to stay in a pet-friendly hotel, which actually means it's not friendly for anyone else. And for example, uh, there was some mystery stains on the carpet. We didn't want to discover what they really were. There was uh, so, there was so much smoke in the room, the way it smelled, that my then-pregnant wife could barely breathe. Um, Our temperature in our room oscillated between freezing and sultry, right, back and forth. And when you woke up to the wonderful free um, breakfast, it was just a couple bagels and some eggs that tasted like oil. It was was wonderful, right? We'd made a terrible mistake. But amidst all that, I would have never chosen 
to just visit Effingham, you know? I mean, even the name, right? But it was on the way. You were all thinking it. It's on the way. And our destination, it determines the path we take, doesn't it? I would never have chosen to just sleep in Effingham unless, of course, I'm headed towards Columbus, our destination. And that's the way that works. And that's kind of the way all of life works to a degree. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, Paul reminds us in our passage of our destination, God's coming kingdom where Jesus Christ will reign and his perfect perfection or his perfect beauty and joy will permeate his whole kingdom and evil will be banished wherever it is found. And if that's true, if that's where we're headed, if that's our destination, then it changes everything. It changes what we love, how we love, who we love. It changes our perspectives, our disputes, our attitudes amidst those disputes because where we're headed determines the path we take. Where we're headed determines the path we take. You know, when we look at this and we hear this idea, I I can hear the pushback, and I've been someone who's given this pushback, thinking to ourselves, well, yeah, but if you're so focused on where you're headed, you're going to be worthless here. Or the old adage, you know, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Anybody remember this phrase? Um, Or maybe even, Karl Marx was right, your religion is just an opiate, of course. And I get it, but as soon as we start thinking about the Christian hope that way, we've completely missed what the Christian hope is really about and how it works and how it transforms everything along the way. It transforms everything along the way. Former Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who in his 30s converted from atheism to Christianity, he writes this about Christian hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most of the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And he goes on to describe how the apostles went about spreading the gospel everywhere. If you fast forward to the Middle Ages, the Christians were engaged in bringing about the Renaissance. And even in more recent times, you can see how Christians were bringing about the abolition of slavery. He goes on to write, They all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. And that's what Paul's addressing in our letter. The church in Corinth, they thought they'd had arrived, when in reality, they just stopped short in Effingham. And it, it led to a whole host of issues. It led to disputes and even lawsuits with one another. Now, I'm sure as soon as you heard this passage, some of you thought, okay, this has nothing to do with me, Gabe. I don't have a case in small claims court, so what do you got, right? Um, Well, here, I want you to know that whether you've been wronged or whether you've been someone who's wronged someone, whether you've been manipulated or you've had the opportunity to manipulate someone, this passage is going much deeper than just small claims court. It's asking the question, is where we're headed determining the path we take in those wronged situations? Or better yet, when people look at your life from the outside, can they determine where you're headed by how you live? This is a crucial question. And so when we come to our passage this morning, we're going to stick with this road trip metaphor, and we're going to see where the Corinthian Christians were, 
We're going to see where we're headed, and then we're going to see where we want to be. Where they were, where we're headed, and where we want to be, okay? So let's ask first, where were they? In one sense, they'd made that pet motel their resort and forgot anything was past Effingham. Basically, what we see in our passage is two men in the church are at odds with one another. They had this financial deal that went sour, and everybody in this little urban church in the midst of Corinth knows about it. And so they're awkwardly singing the same songs, listening to the same sermons, even eating the same communion. Well, they've got this small claims court pending, right, all the while. The best we can tell is that man A ripped off man B, and Paul calls this a grievance in our passage, which is a way of saying this isn't a criminal case, okay? No one got murdered in this scenario. This is a civil case, an everyday affair. For example, Scott didn't pay his rent this month, and he doesn't plan on paying it next month, right? Or Scarlett borrowed $200 in the community, and the timetable for paying that back has kind of gone south. So this is an everyday affair, not a criminal action. And I know some of you in here, you've been there. You've seen someone in our community who's had a need. Maybe you loaned some money, you set out a timetable, and it didn't go according to plan. Or maybe you're sitting next to someone who was using a study Bible the size of your chair, and you thought, surely they would be a great person to start a new venture with. And it didn't go as well as you thought it would. So goes the disputes and maybe even wrestlings through whether lawsuits are in the future. Well, man A defrauds man B, and man B is outraged. And so he brings man A to court. Now, to give us a little context here, in first century Corinth, the local magistrates were actually located in the marketplace, so like our Cosentinos, okay? And you could imagine this private little matter between two Christians in the privacy of the church is brought public. While everybody else is buying their groceries, they're seeing the church squabble against one another in the middle of the marketplace. And also what we need to know is that the Roman culture was a lot like ours. It was very litigious. Lawsuits were a common part of life. And we can't miss, alongside of all this, that there are times where Paul highlights and affirms the role of government in maintaining order in society. But what happens in Roman courts in the first century is that those with the most money and those with the most margin would usually be biased in the decision-making process against the poor. When they would come to the court case, if you were someone of high status, a political figure, or a wealthier person, they would take your word with greater weight than the poorer person, even if the facts proved otherwise. And you would find the Jewish communities and other minority communities, they knew about this bias. And they knew about the injustice. And they had a different worldview than the rest of the Roman culture. So they set up a court system in-house, inside the synagogue such that if someone who was poor brought up a claim against someone who was wealthy, they would actually find equal footing within the synagogue that justice might be carried out. And Paul grew up in this culture. He grew up in the Jewish culture, and he's watching this little church fragment over a financial situation, an everyday dispute brought before the courts. And he's frustrated. If you look at our first eight verses of our passage You find and hear Paul's tone takes on an intensely shocking nature. There are nine rhetorical questions in eight verses. Nine. And the only three statements he uses communicate disappointment. I say this to your shame. You've already been defeated. You're wronging and defrauding each other. How could this happen? And to kind of understand why Paul is kind of 
going off the rails here. We need to put ourselves in his shoes. I want you to imagine you go over to a friend's house, okay, and they turn on Judge Judy, and you see Mike and I going at it. (laughs) And then he goes, hey, aren't those guys your pastors? Imagine the shame you'd feel. And now all of that is also associated with Jesus. That's what's happening in the marketplace in Corinth. And it's frustrating Paul to death. He's like, don't you see what you're doing to the church? Don't you see what you're doing to yourselves? Don't you see what you're doing to Jesus? For some of you, like I said, this passage may feel irrelevant. Okay, Gabe, I promise I'm not going to take another Christian to small claims court. Okay, that's step one. But there's more going on here in this passage. Paul isn't just concerned about what's happening in the hearing. He's concerned about what's happening in their hearts that led them to the pinnacle reality that's happening in the hearing. And it should lead each and every one of us to begin asking the question, okay, in our everyday interactions, how have I manipulated someone for personal gain? Is there anyone in my life that I've inappropriately pressured out of a place of prestige out of a place of power or privilege is there anyone maybe i didn't cheat them out of money but i've cheated them out of joy i've taken their fame i've taken their acclaim or i've put them down to make myself feel better i've cheated them out of joy or maybe even taken advantage of their kindness because i knew they wouldn't retaliate that's another form of manipulation it's a power play in the courtroom of everyday life And Paul challenges us. Now, on the other side, there's a great gift of being a United States citizen. We've got rights. And we've had others who have gone before us, and and honorable folks who have gone before us to fight that those rights might be more realized in the public square. This is a good thing, yes? We love our rights. And this guy, man B, has every right in Roman culture to bring man A to justice. Every right. But what we need to ask ourselves is whether fighting for our rights is always right. Is fighting for our rights, tooth and nail, always right? And I began to ask myself this question, what sort of posture do I have with people who are closest to me? Am I always in fighting mode? Always demanding my rights? Always furthering my entitlement? Imagine how that works in a marriage. How maybe that works with your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, how that transforms into a toxic environment when you're always saying, I'm entitled to my opinion. You don't know what I deserve. And it becomes arrogant, toxic, and destructive. But in this particular situation, Paul does something radical. He actually tells man B, you know what? Isn't it better to be defrauded Isn't it better to give up your right of reimbursement here than to shame the church in the public square? Why? Because where we're headed determines the path that we take. Now, that leads us to our second question, which is pretty crucial. Where are we headed? Look with me in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. When one of you has a grievance, remember there's our word, against another, Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And when Paul uses this word saints, he's not talking about a special class of, you know, self-righteous Christians. He's talking about everyday Christians, all the Christians that make up the church in Corinth. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, if this life is all that there is, 
if our last stop is Effingham, if that's our best chance of the good life, well then, by all means, fight for every square inch of your rights, every square inch of your reputation, every square inch of your finances. If it's just survival of the fittest, then get what you can, when you can, with whatever tools you can, and anyone who gets in your way will forget them, right? But what if there's more? What if Paul's right here in saying that when Jesus returns, we are destined for God's kingdom, and that for us and for all who follow Jesus, we will actually somehow be with Christ in judging the world and the angels. Not now, but a day to come. Shouldn't we know better now in such trivial cases? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're probably thinking, that sounds really, really arrogant. And, you're, and you may even be thinking, well, I knew it. You, get, you Christians really are very judgmental, aren't you? <laughs> now, before we go down that trail, I just want you to know what Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying that Christians at the end of time will snub the rest of the world into damnation with this arrogance of looking down our noses. There's a lot more going on here that when Jesus returns and he brings God's coming kingdom, we will with him somehow banish every square inch of evil from God's kingdom. And somehow you and I and all who follow Jesus' righteous reign will with him make the world right. We don't know how. Paul doesn't clarify how that works. But we will participate in that judging role. And declaring what is wicked actually is wicked and banishing it from God's good and perfect kingdom. There will be a day where we will finally and completely give the verdict to hell with cancer and with child abuse, with isolation, with loneliness, with depression, with hate, with racism, with any form of injustice, any form of sin, any form of regret in your life and mine, even death. The ultimate foe of humankind will be banished from God's good and perfect kingdom. And that's why Paul says later in his letter to this church in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And it will be banished once and for all. And pain will be replaced with comfort, heartache with joy, selfishness with sacrificial love, brokenness with wholeness, as God has designed us to be. And you, Paul says, and you're going to go to case against your brothers and sisters. That's like saying you've won the lottery, but you're arguing over pennies. It doesn't make sense. Really, you're going to extend more margin, more energy at getting even with someone you're going to spend eternity with? Look to where you're headed. Because where you're headed determines the path you take. Are you allowing this glorious, beautiful future that has promised God's people to determine your present? Is what God has promised is coming in his kingdom? Does it impact your day-to-day relationships? If not, then I want to ask you, are you sure you're headed in the right direction? Whether you're a Christian or not, I think we can all agree we want this kind of life, right? We want that sort of future that lies ahead for those who follow Jesus. So let's talk about, lastly, how the destination can actually determine the path, what it really looks like on a day-to-day basis to be where we want to be. And, you know, for me, I'm terrible with direction. Um, we, you know, you have the 475 loop here. In Columbus, we have the 270 loop. 
And when I first got my driver's license, um, I got lost on a loop for like three hours. <laughs> it's like, just get off and exit. And I didn't figure it out. So I need signs. I need signs to affirm that I'm going in the right direction. And so this morning, we're going to focus on, on three signs that confirm we're headed where we want to be, okay? And so first, you and I are letting where we're headed determine the path that we take today when we pursue peace and conflict. When we pursue peace and conflict, Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Not the troublemakers, not the ornery, the peacemakers. Paul himself in another letter says that we are agents of reconciliation. That's a part of our identity. Now think about this. In the gospel, God who is perfect, who is righteous, who is just, saw us rebellious sinners who are broken and the gap that separated us and he became man. He died on a cross to pay our penalty to actually bring about the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation. If God can do that with enemies, how much more can he do that with two of his children, which is what we see here, two Christians going at it. And the fun part is we all have a role to play. And so I want to ask us a few questions this morning to begin the process of self-evaluation in your own relationships. Where, where for you this week do you need to pursue peace and conflict? Where do you need to pursue forgiveness from others for how you've wronged them or how you've manipulated situations? And they may not even be aware of it because you're that good or that bad, however you want to define it. Where in your relationships do you need to let down the guns of vengeance and retaliation and instead pursue peace? Maybe it's a phone call from somebody you haven't talked to for years. Maybe it's a coffee conversation. Maybe it's writing a check. That's what's going on in our passage. Someone's been defrauded. Maybe it's writing a check because you blew someone off and you defrauded someone and you need to make it right. Now, before I go any further, I do have a caveat. Paul isn't saying, when he calls us to pursue peace, he isn't saying we need to avoid conflict, okay? In our relationships, we need to see the ugliness of the evil that's separating us before we can deal with it. We need to be honest about sin, about brokenness and destructive behaviors before forgiveness can be possible and reconciliation happen. Secondly, another caveat is that Paul isn't throwing out legal process, or the legal system and due process altogether. Remember, um, this isn't a criminal case. This is a civil case. This is an everyday affair. This is a grievance. This is critical for the context. Now, to the church's shame, many times these trivial cases make it to court when they never should. But also to the church's shame, the church has twisted this passage to hide criminal cases and further abuse within the church. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. There's a distinction in our passage. But in everyday disputes, the gospel guides us, yes, in all things, but especially in everyday disputes. And we've been given, as Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians, a window into the mysteries of the universe by God through Jesus Christ when he lived, when he died, and he rose again. Because in these mysteries, we're given the key to unlock what we thought was impossible forgiveness. If God will go to such great lengths 
to, to take our penalty upon himself so that forgiveness is possible. Not only do we find the foundation of our own salvation, but a model for relationships. That in that conflict, we've been given the wisdom that we too now need to pay the penalty at times. To bring about reconciliation. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus and being sacrificial to make reconciliation possible? Also in the mysteries of the universe displayed in the gospel, when Jesus Christ rose again on the third day, we're given a picture of where we're headed of what God will do in redeeming all of creation. So why take it to court? The court system is designed to create winners and losers, never to reconcile brothers and sisters. Never to reconcile brothers and sisters. There's arbitration, there's mediation, but litigation, that's winners and losers. And if you take your brother or sister to court, you've already lost, Paul says. Look again at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Have you heard of the new um, miniseries that's in ABC? It's called The Slap. Um, It's really fascinating. The whole premise is a legal dispute shatters this family. A gentleman slaps a kid in the backyard for mouthing off and causing a ruckus. And it destroys this family as they take it to court. And I still remember one of the key lines, if they want to fight, they'll get it. You know? And slowly, this one scenario gets escalated into battle of our pride and who can be the winner. The courtroom was never designed for reconciliation. It's for winners and losers. It's a decision-making process for sure. And here's the deal. What's legal has always been the lowest common denominator in our relationships. If you break what's legal, you get punishment. But for family, we go above what's legal, right? We go and pursue what's loving. We pursue what is best rather than just what's legal. But Gabe, wait a second. The church is a mess. I agree. The church is a beautiful mess, (laughs) but a mess nonetheless. But have you looked at the legal system lately? It isn't all that glamorous either. It's a system that has to deal and work through broken scenarios, not necessarily guide to reconciliation all that easily, which is why when Abraham Lincoln gave advice to a few law students um, over a century ago. This is what he had to say about litigation. Discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how the nominal winner is often a real loser (laughs) in fees, expenses, and a waste of time. It's good wisdom, whether it's a Christian or not. Good wisdom, but especially with a Christian. So sure, if you're more concerned with your rights than reconciliation, if you're more concerned with getting your due than having a desperate world see Jesus, then set up shop in Effingham. If that's it, if that's the end, then go for it. But if there's more, it should change the path that we take. And that leads us to, secondly, you and I are letting where we're headed determine the path we take when we're prepared to be wronged. When we're prepared to be wronged. If you fight for peace rather than your rights, and it fails, then we need to be prepared to be wronged. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Um, Because it's not my fault. Thank you very much. And I don't like to be wronged. Thank you very much. And that's not fair. Thank you very much. Well, I get it. It's not fair. It's grace. It's a different paradigm on which we wrestle through scenarios and relationships. And if you've never been hurt 
by a Christian. It's going to come soon. We're really good at that because we're broken people. So get ready. Maybe somebody's not going to notice something about you you wish they would have. Somebody's going to notice something about you you wish they didn't. And it's going to lead to an argument, a dispute. Maybe you'll be ostracized, criticized. Maybe it'll even lead to some financial issues and disagreements and defrauding. But what's the alternative to what Paul's saying here? Is it revenge? Petty tit for tat? Is it the mental energy that it takes to scheme, to get back? What does Jesus say? When somebody slaps you on your cheek, you offer them the other. And that's radical. And we wrestle through that because we so desperately love to fight for our rights and get our due course. If all we have are these 80 years at best, maybe 100, if we're really lucky, then sure, if somebody wrongs you, you better put them in their place. You've got to fight for what's yours when you can get it and when the getting's good and when the getting's only possible, which is now, if this is all there is. But if we're destined for a place that knows no end, a million years from now, you'll never remember that insult that was said behind closed doors. You won't remember whether or not that person borrowed $500 from you and never paid it back. That's trivial compared to eternity and where we're headed and who we're spending it with. Where you're headed determines the path you take. And listen, that doesn't mean either that we are completely passive in our lifestyle. You see, there are times where the voiceless need a voice. There are times where injustice comes to the outcast, and we are called as followers of Jesus to stand up for them and with them. There are also times where we're not called into abusive situations. And I know that sounds like a contradiction to what I just said a minute ago, but you said turn the other cheek, Gabe. We step into a paradox where it's a lot less black and white and more gray, where Jesus calls us to be as shrewd as serpents, but as gentle as doves. And that's why we can't do this without being in community. There are times where our emotions take charge, where we act rather than out of the paradigm of the gospel We're unaware on how to live out this gospel life, especially in our disputes. And we need others who are seeking to follow Jesus to speak into our lives and say, okay, that's a really intensely abusive scenario. We need you to step out of that, okay? But there are times where we do need to turn the other cheek. There are times where you do need to settle the disputes in the church when they're civil everyday issues. But when they become criminal, we need sometimes the church to say, hey, no, no, no more. We need people to speak into our lives. And there's such a beautiful hope in this passage for those who've been defrauded, for those who've been wronged. And Paul calls this defrauder out in verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers and sisters. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Do, you, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't miss this. Judgment's coming. And for those who oppose God's purposes and oppose God's people and are self-satisfied in their own ways of arrogance, God will come and make it right. And they will not be given access to God's kingdom because they won't want access to God's kingdom either. It's a different ethic, a different way that they don't find appealing. And if you find yourself on this list, it should lead to repentance and a wake-up call this morning. And if you're here this morning and you've been wronged and you've been defrauded, 
hear the words of hope. One day God will make this right. One day God will make all wrongs right. And whether you're a Christian or not, we need to hear this last sign. Um, To give hope for the Christian to step in and to give hope uh, or for the Christian to continue on and hope for the non-Christian to see what God can do now. And the last sign is, is if you and I are letting where we're headed determine the path we take today, then we will trust the one who's already started in us. With all this talk about what's coming, we need to remember what God has already begun, that when Jesus Christ rose again on the third day, his kingdom actually broke into this broken world and began his restoring work even now. And he's begun in his people, he's begun in you and me. When we look through this list of destructive lifestyles, these aren't one-off activities, okay? To be clear, these are nouns, not verbs that Paul is describing here. These are lifestyles, a committed decision to continue in a particular lifestyle. When we look at this list, the sexual immoral, idolater, adulterer, the practicing homosexual, the thief, the greeter, the greeter, sorry. Um, (laughs) You're like, wait, I thought that was what you wanted. Um, The greedy, the substance abuser, the reviler, the swindler, etc. We can all find ourselves in that list, can't we? Far too easily. We see where we've been or where we are. And left to ourselves, none of us belongs in God's kingdom. None of us. And that's why Paul, knowing our own battle with shame, knowing our own war with guilt, he doesn't leave us there. Look with me at verse 11. And such were some of you. This is where you were. This is how you defined your life. This is where you were headed. This was the end point. There wasn't anything past this. This was it. But, and that's one of my favorite conjunctions in Scripture. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You were declared right in the cosmic court of law before a perfect and just God when you rebelled against Him and continued in the rebellion of your family and all of our ancestors all the way back to to Adam and Eve. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid our penalty that we can now stand before God declared innocent and blameless before a right God and be reconciled in relationship. All this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If we are to have any opportunity of looking forward in hope, we have to first look back at the cross. In the cross, Jesus has paid the price of our admittance into the kingdom of God. It's only in embracing him and his finished work on the cross that we find forgiveness, that we find the hope of being declared right. And in his resurrection, we have promise that he will finish what he's already started in us, that he will completely make us new. What more could we want? Where we're headed determines the path that we take. If it wasn't for Columbus, if it wasn't for the destination, If it wasn't for the jokes told around the Thanksgiving table, the conversations over coffee with old friends, the late night movies with family, the feast, right, of Thanksgiving, the nap that comes after the feast, all of this, if it was just Effingham, I'd be crushed. But because of the destination, because of what was to come, Columbus, then I had a patience to endure oily eggs and disturbing carpet. Because of Columbus, what was coming, where I was headed, I had a joy that was unshakable that 
neither anyone or anything in Effingham could take away. Do you see? Where are you headed? Is it impacting the path you take today? Do you see those signs? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I'm just reminded daily how it is both timeless and timely and how far-reaching the gospel is in every aspect of our lives. What you have done in Jesus the Christ in history, in his life, death, and resurrection impacts everything even down to lawsuits. May we have ears to hear. May we rest in the message of the gospel and then may it also be a model for our relationships and our path to forgiveness of others and ourselves. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us a meal. A meal um, that proclaims this gospel to our senses of taste and touch and smell. For you tactile learners, this is critical. But for all of us, this is urgent. Because in this, we see the gospel come to life. Through broken bread, we remember Jesus Christ's body broken for us. Through poor juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new here, let me walk you through how we partake in the supper together. We ask that you would be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you don't have to be a member here at Christ's community. If you do not yet proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're really glad you're here, but we ask that you would refrain from partaking in the supper and instead use this time for prayer, for reflection, that Jesus would continue to reveal the truth of who he is. If you do come, you'll come down one of the two aisles, circle back around to one of the two communion stations. You'll gather in groups of four to six, and you'll partake together. If you have a child here who is yet to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then our servers will also offer a blessing in the same vein that Jesus blesses children when they come to him. But before we come, let us remember. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.